take a moment and just pray for yourself that God would speak this morning through his word. Holy Father, we thank you that we can come to a throne of grace to find help in time of need. Your word says that if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. For with the heart man believes, resulting in righteousness. With the mouth he confesses, resulting in salvation. For the scripture says, whoever believes in him will not be disappointed. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, abounding in riches for all who call upon him. For whoever will call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. How then shall they call upon him in whom they have not believed? And how shall they believe in him whom they have not heard? How shall they hear without a preacher? And how shall they preach unless they are sent? Just as it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring glad tidings of good news. Father, we are so thankful that someone brought the good news, the glad tidings to us that we might hear the gospel, believe and be saved. We know in an applicational sense, you've called everyone to be a preacher, some to serve in the office like myself, but all to carry the message. You said to the entire church that as we go, we are to make disciples of all nations. We thank you for the hundreds of missionaries you've entrusted us to partner with around the world, but we want to especially lift up the Ukrainian pastors and missionaries that are there for your safety over them. Thank you for the thousands of people that they have fed and witnessed to. We pray that you give them strength and protection in these days. We pray that somehow that the evil in this country might be resolved. We pray especially this morning for the Grace Campus and the Graniteville Campus for the homes in and around both those churches, that during the Easter Blitz, that you would bring people who maybe have never thought about coming to those places and bring them here. And even here, Father, on this campus, that you would help us. You said the harvest is great, but the laborers have always been few. So raise up a mighty army of men and women and boys and girls and teenagers who will go with us simply to invite May you prepare the way. Thank you that you are sovereign in the affairs of men and nations. And it seems, Father, in a day when so much of the body of Christ is blinded to basic truths of your return, help us to be alert, to recognize the setting that we are living in at this time in human history. Thank you that you've indexed your prophetic schedule to the people of Israel and you've brought them back into the land which you said you would do at the end of time. Help us not to be blind to the days of Noah and the days of Lot that you said would accompany the return of your son from heaven. Days of lawlessness, immorality, and perversion. We pray that we would be faithful stewards of the gospel, that when we meet you in heaven, Lord Jesus, and you evaluate our lives there, that we will have invested them and not wasted them. 
Help me today. Please speak through me, anoint me and empower me, and use the message for your glory and honor. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to invite you this morning to take your Bibles and turn to the prophet Jonah chapter 4. This is the last in our series of messages on this prophet. I suppose next to the books of Genesis and Daniel, there's no single book in all of the Bible that is more badly battered and beaten up in the sea of criticism than the prophet Jonah. Some believe that it's a myth, that it's mythological. Some, in wanting to escape the miraculous nature of the book, say it's only a parable. Some allegorically interpret it, but Christ taught that the prophet Jonah was a real historical person. Besides linguistically, the events that are presented in this book are presented as historical narrative. A real prophet from a real place with a real dad whose name is given goes to a real city where there are real people to whom he preaches the gospel in which the single greatest mass conversion in the history of the world to date. The biggest conversion in all of human history is still in the future. What we have sought to do for 2,000 years during the time of Jacob's trouble, during the time of the Great Tribulation, Jesus taught in the Olivet Discourse that this gospel of the kingdom will go to the whole world. And then the end will come. Indeed, during that seven-year period, as you read the Revelation, and the witness of the 144,000 Jewish men, the two witnesses and an angel, people from every tribe, tongue, and nation are saved. But in the interim, we are to be faithful as if we were the only people on the planet that cared about the lost. We can't just think, well, it's some missionary out there, some church over there. If we're the only born-again Christians on all the planet, it would not change our responsibility one bit. Now let's take a moment to put our passage in the overall context. One of my goals for us as a congregation is that we're able to think our way through entire books of the Bible. When you think of Ephesians, you should think two divisions, what we believe, one through three, how we behave, four through six. When you think of Romans, you should think three sections, the doctrinal section, one through eight, the national section, nine through 11, how Israel was elected of God, how Israel rejected the Messiah, and how God will restore Israel, and then the applicational section, 12 through 16. And when you have the big picture of a book in your mind, then it becomes a tool, not just in your own life, but to be able to use it for those whom God calls you to disciple. If you remember, this chart is a reminder that this book revolves around two commissions. There's the first commission of Jonah, and so the book opens with the words, the word of the Lord came to Jonah the prophet. And then if you remember in chapter three and in verse one, we're told now the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time. That's the recommission of Jonah. And so we learned how in the first commission of Jonah, it began with disobedience in chapter one, but it ended with obedience in chapter two. And then when he is recommissioned, it begins with obedience in chapter three, but it ends with disobedience in chapter four. He's the AWOL prophet of the Old Testament. In the beginning of the book, he's absent without leave. At the end of the book, he is absent without love. And we've seen that these two commissions revolve around two principal places. Chapters one and two take place on the sea. Chapters three and four take place in the city. 
And the first two chapters, the theme is God's kindness to Jonah. And the second two chapters, the theme is God's kindness to the Ninevites. And so the book revolves around those two commissions. The first commission is very simple. Go to Nineveh and proclaim, preach the good news. And as a prophet, like Peter reminds us in Acts the 10th chapter, they preached Messiah. All the prophets, Peter said, all the prophets preached the coming of the Messiah. That would be true of the first prophet Abel, and it would be true even of a man like Jonah. They may not have known that his name was Yeshua, but nonetheless, they knew what the message was and what God had promised to do. Now, as this map reminds you, instead of going north uh, west towards Tarshish, excuse me, northeast towards Nineveh, he goes northwest to Tarshish. He's in Joppa, that would be Tel Aviv today, and he goes 2,500 miles in the opposite direction. He's running from God. And of course, when you run from God, if you go west when God calls you to go east, he's going to discipline you. That is if you're born again. Because those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines. While he loves all the world, he has a special affection on those who are his, his beloved. And so God disciplines his prophet. He hurls a great storm on the sea. Sailors are coming unglued. They're afraid the ship is going to go under. They draw lots. Providentially, the lot falls on Jonah. They see he is the culprit. Now, of course, at first, they try to get rid of certain things. They jettison the cargo to save the ship. That's what a lot of people do today. They try to get rid of their lying, their stealing, their lust, and their lies, and they think that, that if they can somehow lighten their spiritual ship, that they can get right with God. Then when that doesn't work, they row hard. Literally, they dug into the water, the text says. But all of their toil and sweat and tears could not rescue them, and neither can yours. And so when they cast lots and they find the troublemaker is Jonah, what do they do? They throw him overboard. He doesn't jump, but he is thrown overboard at their hands. And the sea instantly stops its raging, Jonah 1.15 says. And Jonah is pictured by the Lord Jesus as a type, as an illustration of himself. Sometimes people call things types that aren't necessarily types. But, of course, Jesus said, the scriptures speak of me. He said that when the very first verse in the New Testament had yet to be written. The scriptures about him, you can find Christ through Genesis all the way through Malachi. And, of course, Jesus takes the wonderment out of it. He makes it clear that just as Jonah was in the belly of the great fish three days and three nights, even so he would be in the heart of the earth. And of course, when Jonah is thrown overboard, when he has a vicarious death of sorts, the sea immediately stops its raging. And the only way, the only way that you're going to receive peace with God is through another substitute that Jonah pictured, the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul wrote to the church at Colossae, that Christ made peace through the blood of his cross. And so in one moment, more was accomplished than all of their toil, all of their lightning of the ship. And that's true for you if you're ever going to meet God in heaven. Paul said to the church at Ephesus, for by grace you have been saved through faith. And that not of yourselves, 
It's salvation. It's the gift of God. It's not as a result of works so that nobody can boast or brag. He's thrown overboard. He sinks down. And of course, before he drowns, God appoints a great fish and swallows Jonah. And you would do what Jonah did. You'd start praying. And he prayed earnestly while in the belly of that great fish. And of course, um, he doesn't get relief until he promises to keep the vow that he made when he was called to be a prophet of God. So we read in chapter two and in verse nine, but I will sacrifice to you at the voice of thanksgiving. That which I have vowed I will pay, salvation is from the Lord. So God did not let Jonah drown, but neither did he let him out of that fish until he promised to keep his vow. And so Jonah was in the belly of that great fish, and it's not until he repents and get his heart right that we read in verse 10 of that chapter, then the Lord, Yahweh, notice all caps, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, distinguished from capital L, small letter, O-R-D. There are different spellings in the English Bible, whether it's capital G-O-D or capital G, small letter O-D, that tells you which name of God is being used. If you're not sure, read the index or the prefix. I should say the, the introduction to the NASB. Most Bibles will distinguish that in the uh, in the front of the Bible. Then the Lord Yahweh commanded the fish and it vomited Jonah up onto the dry land. So not only do we find a type of the substitutionary death of Christ, we also find a picture of his supernatural resurrection. The fish vomited Jonah up, it's very graphic in the Hebrew, gravy and all, throws him up, and of course he comes out unharmed and healthy. It was a miracle. You say you believe it? Yes, I believe it. I believe in every miracle in the Bible because I believe in God. I don't have any difficulty with miracles. I don't have any difficulty with God preserving Jonah. Again, Jesus said it was a picture of his own resurrection. Paul the apostle asked King Agrippa this question. Why is it considered incredible among you people if God raises the dead? I mean, if God could make a man out of nothing, If God could make a great fish out of nothing, then don't you think that God could appoint a great fish to swallow that man and to protect him and to preserve him? Look, if the Bible said Jonah swallowed the fish, I'd believe it. God can do whatever he wants. All things are possible with God. Once you get past Genesis 1-1, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, you'll have no difficulty with the miracles in the Bible. And so sadly, pathetically, theistic evolution has crept into the evangelical church, largely through men like Tim Keller, who in his book, Reason for God, says, listen, theistic evolution is a viable option for the believer. And then as recently as last year said, Genesis 1 and 2 is filled with errors unless it is poetry. It's not poetry, it's history. And as soon as you rewrite biblical history, you change biblical morality. So I'm not surprised with his leadership and the revoice movement with Sam Alberry. And yes, my heart was broken last week when that great missionary school, the Black Forest Academy, invited him to come and speak. Look, when you tell these young people, look, if you have feelings of gay, it's okay, just don't act on them. You're feeding a problem. You're feeding a perversion. 
No, feelings like that are to be brought under the lordship of Jesus Christ. And so after he spent three days and three nights under God's chastisement, he repents, he gets right, and God gives him a second chance because God is the God of the second chance. Not in terms of salvation. Jesus said to the unbelieving Jews of his day, for unless you believe that I am he, that is God in human flesh, you will perish. You will die in your sin. The writer to the Hebrews said, for, all, for it is appointed for a man to die once, for men to die once. And after that, not reincarnation, after that, not a second chance like Clark Pinnock falsely taught, he knows better now. After that comes the judgment. But while there's no second chance for salvation, there is a second chance for service. God loves to pick us up when we've made a mess out of our life, even as people who know him. And to clean us up, he loves to forgive. Now, let's see if we can get the outline of the book fixed in our mind. In chapter one, he is the uh, prodigal prophet. Come on now, you have a little more. In chapter one, he's the prodigal prophet. He is running from God. He basically says, I won't go. He gets swallowed by that great fish and he would do what you would do and he becomes the praying prophet. In chapter two, he is the praying prophet and there he is running towards God and he says, I will go. In chapter three, after he's vomited out on dry land, he becomes the the preaching prophet. There he's running for God and he basically says, I'm here. But finally, where we are today in the fourth chapter, he becomes the pouting prophet. He's running ahead of God and basically says, I wish I hadn't have come. All right, now we've spent the last two messages in the first eight verses. Today, we're just gonna focus on verses nine through 11, but for context, I wanna read the entire chapter one final time. Follow along in your Bible. But it greatly displeased Jonah, and he became angry. He prayed to the Lord and said, please, Lord, was not this what I said while I was still in my own country? Therefore, in order to forestall this, I fled to Tarshish, for I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness and one who relents concerning calamity. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for death is better to me than life. The Lord said, do you have good reason to be angry? Then Jonah went out from the city and sat east of it. There he made a shelter for himself and sat under it in the shade until he could see what would happen in the city. So the Lord God appointed a plant and it grew up over Jonah to be a shade over his head to deliver him from his discomfort. And Jonah was extremely happy about the plant. But God appointed a worm when dawn came the next day and it attacked the plant and it withered. When the sun came up, God appointed a scorching east wind, and the sun beat down on Jonah's head so that he became faint and begged with all his soul to die, saying, death is better to me than life. Then God said to Jonah, do you have good reason to be angry about the plant? And he said, I have good reason to be angry even to death. Then the Lord said, you had compassion on the plan for which you did not work and which you did not cause to grow, which came up overnight and perished overnight. Should I not have compassion on Nineveh, the great city, 
in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know the difference between their right and left hand as well as many animals. The pouting prophet, everyone knows what it means to pout. We typically associate it with children, but it's certainly not limited to children. And so we've discovered in this chapter, while God has done a lot in the prophet's life, he has a lot more to do. He's still caught up with a certain degree of self-will, self-desire, self-determination that God needs to root out. And as we've been learning here in chapter four, God's plan for Jonah is not just to get him to go where he wants him to go, but he wants him to be what he's supposed to be. And remember, the New Testament in texts like 1 Corinthians 10, it tells us that the Old Testament was written for our instruction upon whom the ends of the age have come. And so this is not simply what God has said, this is what God is saying. And in the early church, there was a long period of time when they didn't have the very first verse of the New Testament. But they would go out and evangelize. And they would reason from the scriptures, from the Tanakh, from the Old Testament, that Jesus is the Messiah. Now, if you remember, let's zoom in a little tighter on chapter four. With each chapter, I've given you three words that summarize the chapter. If you've been here for all 10 messages, then you should have three words in out in the margin, chapter one, chapter two, chapter three. And in these last few weeks, I gave you three words for chapter four. In verses one through four, he enters a seminary. Some of you have always wanted to go to seminary. Well, you've had the chance. JTS, the Jehovah Theological Seminary. And he brings his prophet into this school, first in verses one through four with a course on attitude. He deals with the subject of attitude. Then in verses five through eight, he takes Jonah through a course on consistency, a course on consistency. And then finally, he matriculates into the third course in verses nine through 11, where he goes through a course on perspective, on perspective. So here in chapter four, it's a classroom scene where God is the professor and Jonah is the student. And God has three courses designed to meet three specific needs in his servant's life. And so we examine first the course on attitude. And so God asks a question here, do you have good reason to be angry. And of course, God loves to ask questions. And whenever you see the voice of God recorded in Scripture asking questions, it's never to learn, for He is omniscient, it is only to reveal. In effect, He's helping Jonah, and by extension, us to see what is in our hearts. Now, if you were here last week in verses 5 through 8, we went through the course on consistency. We studied last Sunday how God wants to get Jonah off of the emotional roller coaster that's dictated by the circumstances in his life. And until God's word and not our circumstances rules us, then we will have an up and down Christian experience. Now, and if you remember, God gave him some audio visuals to teach him that lesson. He gave him a plant that he supernaturally created and then he appointed a worm to eat the plant so that it died. So now he enrolls him on this third course on perspective. There's a note-taking outline in the bulletin. If you're new, if you're online, you can print it out. Two simple points this morning. First, God teaches Jonah about his warped perspective. He wants to teach Jonah about his warped perspective. Now, when we come to verses 9 through 11, it's not simply the conclusion of the book, it's really the apex of the book. 
It's the height of all that has come to a head. In verses one through eight, we got a clear picture of Jonah's heart, but now in verses nine through 11, we get a picture into the heart of God himself. We find here a contrast between God's view of people and Jonah's view of people. Look, if you will, at verse nine. Then God said to Jonah, do you have good reason to be angry about the plant? And he said, I have good reason to be angry even to death. Now, God gets more specific in his question about anger. The first question was simply, Jonah, do you have good reason to be angry? It's a question, who's right, God or or Jonah? This second question is a little more focused because God is refining the curriculum. Do you have good reason to be angry about the plant? He's helping him to see, as I hope you will see, that his perspective is a little here warped. Where has his anger taken him? Is it legitimate, Jonah, for you to be angry about the plant? Look at his response. I have good reason. I have good reason to be angry even to death. Or to paraphrase it, yes, God, I have good reason. My comfort has been interrupted. My lifestyle has been diverted. My ease has been interfered with. You're playing with my life. Yes, I have good reason to be angry and mad about this plant. Billy Sunday, who was kind of the Billy Graham of his day, he said that when people complained about his preaching, he said, well, if you take a stick and you throw it into a pack of dogs, the dog that gets hit will yelp the loudest. Well, Jonah just got hit. He's yelping. God put his finger on the problem, and God wants to show Jonah that the greatest problem in Jonah's life is an unhealthy love for Jonah. He's more interested in pleasing Jonah at this point than he is in pleasing the Lord. And unchecked anger will lead to bitterness. Look, when you get out of the will of God, if you're a regenerate person, then your spirit within you is grieved because you can not only quench the spirit, But the Bible teaches you can grieve the spirit. You quench the spirit when you don't do in the positive realm that which you ought to do. You grieve the spirit when you don't do what you should do, when you just disobey God outright. And when your spirit is grieved, you begin to get displeased with yourself. And if left to fester, well, that anger becomes a root of bitterness, as the writer of the Hebrews says. And so at first... He's just kind of angry in general. You know, God, you looks like you're going to save all these Ninevites. When east of the city, geographically, he's up high. Day 40 hadn't come, hoping God's going to just wipe it out. Maybe their repentance isn't real. But after a while, when you're out of fellowship with God, everything begins to bother you. He's bothered about little petty things. We get angry because our plans don't go the way we think they should go. Like maybe even God has interfered and, and after a while it just seems like life is one big irritant. The circumstances and trials of life just make us angry. That's a life that's not walking with the Lord. And so God in effect is saying, look where your anger has taken you. Is it right for you to get bent out of shape over these little petty annoyances? Now, remember, I told you last time 
that some Christians falsely think, well, the Old Testament is just for another age. And sadly, some pastors never preach the Old Testament. But remember at the conclusion of Romans, Paul says, for whatever was written in earlier times was written for our instruction, so that through perseverance and the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. The earlier times, of course, is the Old Testament era, the Old Covenant era, and is reminding us that the instruction and the application of the Old Testament didn't expire with Old Testament saints. It was not only written for their day, but it's written for our day. And so let me remind you that while Jonah belonged to an elite group of prophets, what happened in his life is instructional to us. There's a few prophets, actually three to be specific, that actually do a miracle. Um, Moses was the first one that God used to do a miracle through, and then Elijah and Elijah, you know, Jeremiah, Isaiah, Ezekiel, those guys never did miracles. And there are people today in the charismatic Pentecostal movement that would have you to believe that miracles coming down through uh, the church should be just standard fare, that we should believe God for miracles. And sometimes what we call a miracle is not a miracle at all. Little babies born, oh, what a magnificent miracle. It's not a miracle. Now, it's the handiwork of God Almighty. God wove that little creature, that little person, together in his mother's womb. But a miracle is when God transcends the physical laws that are to govern the physical universe. And God didn't do that very often. He just did it on the great ganglions of human history. And the next set of miracles, you know, after Moses, after hundreds of years went by, and Elijah and Elijah, and hundreds of years went by, and then came Christ and the apostles. And when they were off the scene, it ended. And the next cluster is still in the future during the time of the great tribulation period. So there are that group of elite prophets. And then there's another group of elite prophets, just a handful to whom they had a miracle done to them or for them. And Jonah falls into that perspective, into that category. And so it would be easy for us to think, well, you know, he's just so different. James reminds us of that truth, does he not, concerning Elijah the prophet? He says he's a man with a nature just like ours. He was cut out of the same piece of cloth that you and I were cut out of. And yes, while God did the supernatural through him, he was still an ordinary human being. And we do not want to miss the valuable lessons that God wants to teach Jonah and by extension, all of us. So each one of us really need to ask ourselves as God asked Jonah, what do I get excited about? And what do I get angry about? Now, Jonah's difficult life was the result of his own selfish, warped, perspective. I mean, think about it. Where could he have been? He gets all bent out of shape. The plant dies, scorching hot sun of Sirocco, that hot winds that come off the Sahara, they just burning hot. You can almost feel it like being in a sauna. And where could he have been? He could have been in the king's palace sipping a Syrian iced tea. I mean, think about it. He's a hero. He comes, they know they're going to be destroyed. The God of Israel had a reputation. The nations of the world would often repeat it as you read the Torah. Oh, the God of Israel, he is the one who brought them out by 10 mighty plagues. He split the Red Sea in two. And so when someone intersected with someone who represented the God of Israel, whoa, we better pay attention. And this prophet comes, 
brings them a message of forgiveness, and God sees their repentance, he stays his wrath. He could have been a hero, but you see, his perspective is warped. He was hoping God would wipe the Ninevites off the face of the earth. And we study that in depth, why he had that perspective in the opening of these 10 messages. Remember, there was three contemporary prophets who had said at some time in the future, God is going to use the Ninevite people to come down and destroy Israel. They will be God's servant as God's disciplinary agent to carry the Israelites away because of their idolatry. And of course, if you know anything about the Ninevites, which you should if you've been here, they were wicked, they were vicious, Beyond all thought, not only does the book of Nahum that comes 100 years later where the grandchildren repent of their parents and grandparents' repentance, but even the archaeological evidence is in the writings and inscriptions where they wrote about how cruelly they treated people. They bragged about it. So he wants them wiped off the earth. So my brothers and sisters in Christ, I would ask you this morning, what makes you angry? I ask myself that question. There is a righteous anger, but then there's some things that we get bent out of shape because our perspective is tilted. You say, I can't believe this guy. I mean, the greatest revival in the history of man. And he's all upset over a plant. How many Christians you know who get more upset over their golf game being interrupted than missing coming to church? How many Christians you know who are more upset over the waitress who messes up their order than the condition of her soul? How many Christians do you know who are more concerned with their shrubbery and their flowers that have been messed up by the next door neighbor's dog than they do about the next door neighbor? How many Christians do you know who will vote for a candidate who's squishy on the moral issues, who's in favor of sexual perversion, who's in favor of murdering little babies, but they'll vote for him anyway because that candidate will, will feather their nests and keep their economy in good shape. It's easy to dump on a guy like Jonah without asking, well, what do I really care about? What are my real priorities? Do I really track for the Lord? So as we think about this prophet, there are two problems that really need to be addressed. On the surface, his problem seems that he has no heart for the people of Nineveh, and he only wants to see them wiped off the planet. But Jonah's real problem goes much deeper, and he has no room, in essence, for the God whom he is serving. While the God whom he is serving has plenty of room for the Ninevites. You see, his God is too small, and that's why his heart for lost people is too small. I find it intriguing that the greatest problem that God has to address in the book is not the pagan sailors in chapter 1 or the 600,000 plus Ninevites who repent, but a believer, not just any believer, a prophet of God. Despite their gross evil, God brings the message because God loves the lost. The prophet Ezekiel in the 33rd chapter says, 
I take, God speaking, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked. You think God delights in sending people to hell? He does not. Some think it's all fixed. You know, God created some as objects of eternal wrath. That's because they have a warped view of the church. Some of the reformers who came out of Roman Catholicism, they were taught by their Roman Catholic predecessors that the church, namely the Catholic church, had become the chosen people of God and they had replaced Israel. And so they just took that and put a different spin on it, and they said it's the body of Christ. So when Calvin came to chapters 9, 10, and 11 of Romans, he didn't know what to do with it. I mean, not if there's still a place for national Israel. Chapter 9 deals with Israel's rejection. I mean, Israel's election. Chapter 10 of Romans deals with Israel's rejection. In chapter 11, with their future restoration, that God is not done with the Jew. Jeremiah 31 says, as long as the sun and the stars and the moon are up in the sky above, that's how long God will be committed to Israel. And so God is going to use the nation just as he used them the first time to bring his son into the world the first time. He'll use them the second time. But look, it's not all prearranged. Yes, God could elect people before the foundations of the world. Why? Because God's omniscient. For knowledge, it's used for other places in the New Testament, in each of those places, it speaks of something that someone knew information about beforehand. God in eternity past, he wouldn't be God if he didn't know. He saw how men and women would respond. That doesn't change your free will. God takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked. He could not say that if it was all prearranged. But he does. And yet, do we really care about it? I mean, it's a sobering thought. Here is this man of God that God gives God more trouble than the pagan sailors and the Ninevites themselves. And so he is running from God. He's pouting under that bush. When God is desirous, it's a trustworthy statement. It deserves your full acceptance. The scripture says that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. You see, the real problem very often, we look at the wickedness in our world and the depths of sin that just seems to be growing and deepening and broadening. And we say, oh, the problem's all out there. When very often the problem is right in here. The problem is with us. The problem was not with those Ninevites. The problems with God's prophet. And so one of the lessons we can learn from Jonah is that very often the greatest problem that God has is not the sinner, but it's the saint who has been called of God and commissioned of God to take the gospel to the world. We're a lot more like Jonah than maybe we care to admit. Now that's Jonah's warped perspective. Secondly, there on your outline, let's think for just a few minutes about Jonah's heartless perspective. God teaches Jonah something about his heartless perspective. Now, don't miss verses 10 and 11 because these two verses are the key to developing a proper perspective for Jonah. Let's look at verse 10 first, and as we read it, you might want to underline the three second-person pronouns. 
Then the Lord, then Yahweh said, you, circle that or underline it, you had compassion on the plant for which you did not work, which you did not cause to grow, which came overnight and perished overnight. Don't miss the significance. Jonah, you feel sorry for the plant, don't you? I mean, Jonah, you had compassion on an ordinary, everyday, temporal plant. Now, we need to ask why it is that Jonah felt sorry, why Jonah had compassion on the plant. Well, because his creature comforts had been disruptive, the plant dies, that hot Middle East wind is blowing on him, the sun is beating down on his head, and he is upset. And so God basically reveals three truths to this prophet that he and we need to take into consideration. He basically says, you see that plant, Jonah? First, that plant is a plant that you didn't work for. You didn't have to go out there and dig up the soil and put a plant in the ground. You didn't need to lay down the fertilizer. You didn't need to weed it or till it or water it. You didn't do a thing. Second, you see that plant, Jonah? You need to understand that you didn't cause it to grow. I did it. In fact, I did a jack and the beanstalk on it. It supernaturally grew overnight. And third, you see that plant, Jonah? Not only did it grow up overnight, but I killed it overnight. I caused that plant to die. I created that plant. I sustained that plant. I killed that plant because it's my plant. Now, Jonah needed the perspective that Job had. Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I shall return. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. So God now is helping this pouting prophet to see that his problem is he thinks it's his plant, and it's not his plant. It's God's plant. And if we have a warped perspective on things, then it is going to affect the way we think about those who are lost. The psalmist said it so well, it's already up in Psalm 24.1, the earth is the Lord's and all it contains. It's all God's, we're just the stewards of it, the world and all those who live in it. And until we're gripped with that perspective that it's all God's and we're just stewards, then things will have a tendency to control us. Let's put this into New Testament theology. Hold your finger, don't lose Jonah. Go to 1 Timothy chapter 6. 1 Timothy chapter 6. If you're new to the Bible, all the books in the Bible are all that begin with the letter T, they're all found in the New Testament. And they go from long to short. So the word Thessalonians is longer than the word Timothy, and the word Timothy is longer than the word Titus. So you have 1st and 2nd Thessalonians, 1st and 2nd Timothy, and then Titus. And those five books come right after Gary Eats Popcorn. Go everywhere preaching Christ. The great electric power company, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. So there's nine books you hopefully have fixed in your mind. If you can find one, then you can find any one of those nine books. Now, Peter said many times, I want to stir you up by way of reminder. This I know is a familiar text if you've known Christ for some years, but just knowing a passage doesn't mean that we're necessarily applying it. And so let me briefly uh, set the context. The Apostle Paul is uh, addressing his son in the faith, Timothy, whom he discipled, who himself is a pastor to avoid false teachers in the church. And so if you look in verse five of chapter six, 1 Timothy 6, 5, he describes these men as men of depraved mind. 
Same word that's used in Romans, adikamos, upside down minds. Men of, depraved, uh, men of a depraved mind and deprived of the truth. And how do they illustrate that? Well, in this instance, they suppose that godliness is a means of gain. Now, the issue at hand that Paul addresses arose because the false teachers had snuck into the church. That's what happens. There were once some great churches in this town that today don't even believe the Bible. What happened? Whoever was in leadership didn't heed the warning of the book of Jude. It could happen to Community Bible Church. If we're not careful, someday you will read Carl Brogy is dead if Jesus doesn't come back first. And who will take my place? You see, it's easy for the evil one to break in and for people to miss it. And so that's what was happening amongst the people that he had uh, disciple men of depraved mind, deprived of the truth, who supposed that godliness is a means of gain. And so they were exploiting the gospel with their teaching for material gain. That's what they were trying to do. They were trying to line their own wallet. Maybe they were charging exorbitant fees. I'll never forget one of the first trips we took to Ukraine in 1997, and there were all these signs outside all the Orthodox churches, baptism, three grievedness, house blessing, five grievedness, and all this list of things. And there was a charge for all, because those were just lost men. Those were the ones who actually attacked the, the Baptists that for pretty much represent Bible-believing Christians in that country. So we go into some towns where there might be an Orthodox church, but no born-again believers. We went into some towns where there was nothing. And we'd do these vacation Bible schools, and we'd go back the next year, and after a while, you'd have 30 or 40 people, and, and we'd buy a building and turn it into a church. And what did those religious men do? Well, we interfered with their fees. So they'd come and break the windows of believers' house. They'd break the windows in the church. That's what false teachers do sometimes. Now, the specifics of how they raise the money were not told. There's a lot of shysters here in America. We call it the prosperity gospel. So how does Paul react to this? Well, he does not react by denying the false teacher's view that godliness is a means of gain. Rather, he agrees with them. He just redefines what God means by gain. And so he says in verse 6 that they are quite right, but godliness actually is a means of great gain with this caveat when accompanied by contentment. That is, there's a gain in the ministry on that both Paul and the false teachers agree, but there's a different definition of gain. The New English Bible that was a paraphrase done by the Brits decades ago renders it this way. They think religion should yield high dividends. And of course, religion does yield high dividends. Their agreement is only verbal, but not on the definition. It's like the cults. You know, those Mormons, we need to pray for them. We need to witness to them. Same with the Jehovah's Witness, the advantage we have this year is that the Jehovah's Witness, we're getting letters to our house. My wife got one last week, inviting her to be a part of a Bible study. They're, they're just not out there knocking the doors. They're terrified of COVID still. <laughs> so we may not have to compete with them, but you know, they, they use the same words. So Jesus is the savior of the world. Just a different dictionary to define those words. And that's what these guys are doing. Different definition of gain. 
And so Paul goes on to add that these spiritual riches can only be enjoyed by those who are content. Godliness is actually a means of great gain when accompanied by contentment. The spiritual gain is enormous if there's contentment, but without that contentment, there's a lack of perspective, and that's Jonah's problem. So in verses seven and eight, he explains a case for contentment. You don't wanna miss it. See the very first word at the beginning of verse seven, it's that word for. Now the word for can mean different things in the New Testament. In some of the paraphrase translations, we'll put two or three words there, but this is causal. It means because, because here's the reason, we have brought nothing oidos, oides into the world, so we cannot take anything out of it, oide. Now even if you didn't know Greek, and you had a Greek New Testament in front of you, you could say, oh, those two words look very similar, that's why I put them up there. The same Greek word, just used in different cases, is repeated twice, and it means nothing. In fact, the J.B. Phillips translation kind of captures it nicely, listen to what that translation says, absolutely nothing did we bring into this world, absolutely nothing shall we take out of this world. So the word nothing actually appears twice in the original. Now Paul is not praising poverty or declaring prosperity a sin. A sin. God has nothing against you acquiring things and providing for your family and bettering the state that you may be in. But he is simply describing those people who seek gain for gain's sake in and of itself. Because he wants to underscore that real contentment is not external, it's internal, it's on the inside. So think your way through this as it relates to birth and as it relates to death, and then you will know for sure that this is true in the point that he wants to make. When you come into this world, you come naked without a single thing to your name, no material possessions. And when you die, I did a funeral just a few days ago on Thursday, and as Dr. Graham used to say, never are you all behind the hearse. You leave with nothing. Now they may dress you up in a beautiful Hickey Freeman suit. Ladies, you may have some of your best jewelry on, but you won't take it with you. People don't carry what they own either into heaven or hell. And again, Paul is echoing the truth of Job 121. Naked I came from my mother's room, and naked I shall return there. The Lord gave, the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. So both Paul and Job remind us that material things are just temporal. And so to help us to gain this perspective, look at verse 8. And if we have food and covering, with these we shall be content. If you have food and covering, I spoke to one of our pastors, lead pastors who oversees 150 churches in the Ukraine just a few days ago. He's just so grateful that in his oblast they have food and their homes have not yet been bombed. We're in other oblasts, no food. People are hungry. It's a cold place. You ever lived in Minnesota? You're mimicking the Ukraine. It's not comfortable. And Paul says, look, if we have clothes on our back, the word here for covering is a broad word in the Greek New Testament. It refers to clothes on your back or shelter over your head. If we have food and covering with that, we should be content. But if you try to find satisfaction with material things, 
Well, it's like drinking salt water. The more you have, the more you need. You'll never be content. You'll never be satisfied. And so Paul is giving us some facts about birth and some facts about death. And between these two points of nakedness, when we're born and when we die, we travel on this journey. And God wants us to have a perspective that's right and, and, and that we're not always lusting and coveting and saying, I need this or I need that to be content. So he is reminding the believers to whom Timothy ministered of these false teachers who are teaching the reverse of what God says, just as many false teachers are doing in our day, so that they will have a right perspective. And until you have, until I have a right perspective on things, I can promise you, you will never have a right perspective on people. The passion of your heart will not be to bring people into the kingdom of God. Look, when you have a covetous spirit, when you're always seeking more to be happy, it takes a tremendous toll on you, a lot of energy just to pull it off. And you ultimately can't enjoy what God has even given you. Look at verse nine. But, contrast, but those who want to get rich. The English Standard Version says, those who desire to be rich. The King James puts it beautifully, those that will be rich, that, that will will to be rich. The word bulamai means to will, to desire, to want. He's speaking here of a determination of a willful desire to become rich. Now let's be clear here, he's not speaking about rich people yet or poor people. He doesn't address the rich until you come to verse 17 of this chapter. He's just dealing with people who desire, who want, who will, who are driven to be rich. But those who want to get rich, notice, fall into temptation and a snare and many foolish and harmful desires, which plunge men into ruin and destruction. For those who are determined to get rich, they fall. Not necessarily in the material realm. It often leads, as we'll see here, to a spiritual fall in the heart. Now, we don't know if Jonah was a rich man or a poor man, but we do know at least at this little snapshot in his life, he's a covetous man, that the plant was more important to him than the people were. And so I want you to think about this fall. It is described in six phases. Don't miss it. First, they fall into temptation. They do for themselves what they should be praying that God will never do. Lead us, Lord, not into temptation. They create their own temptations. They lead themselves into temptation. They expose themselves into temptation. Why? Because when you have a covetous heart, your heart isn't directed towards the living God. And you're easily brought down. Second, they fall into a snare. It's a word that refers to a trap. Like an animal caught in a trap and you can't escape. And so it just has a grip on you and the materialism and the debt and all. It just kind of strangles your life. Third, notice they fall into many foolish and harmful desires. Epithema or lust. The word lust can be used positively like the spirit lust. He desires to, to fill us. Or it can be used negatively. And not just in the sexual realm, but all kinds of realms. Here in the material realm. And so those who fall, fall first into temptation, second into a snare, third into foolish and harmful desires, fourth, notice, into ruin and destruction. 
You should maybe number these over the top of your text. That might be helpful. Because this is a passage of Scripture you ought to be able to teach to the new Christian to help them to develop an eternal perspective. Some of you aren't even taking notes. Shame on you. I spent 30 hours preparing this passage to feed you. And you need to jot some of these things down. Now, listen, the irony here is that these covenant people have set their hearts on gain, but the very gain they're seeking after only creates loss. It might be a loss of respect. It might be a loss of integrity. In death, it might be a loss of everything they possess and in eternity hell. And for the believer at the judgment seat of the just, the Bema seat of Christ, a loss of eternal reward. Yet he's not done. There's a fifth result, verse 10. For the love of money is the root of all sorts of evil, and some by longing for it have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many a pang. This, I suppose, verse 10 is one of the most misquoted verses in all the Bible. How many times have you heard people say money is the root of all evil? Of course, the Bible does not say that money is the root of all evil. It says the love of money is a root of all sorts of evil. For the love of money is a root of all sorts of evil. Now notice some translations will add the word the. Uh, the love of money is the root, but it's actually not articular. There's no article there. Sometimes a translation does that to smooth it out in its reading, but it's properly reflected in the New King James and in the New American Standard. It is a root. It's a major root, but it's not the only root of evil. And it's not just money. Money in and of itself is amoral. It's just paper and money. But the love of it, I mean, men have lied for it. They worry about it. They cheat for it. They've killed for it. They've destroyed their families over it. They've sold their souls for the love of money. In fact, in the parable of the sower, Jesus said it will keep many people out of the kingdom. He says on one soil, one reason for rejection, but the worries of the world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desires for other things enter in and choke the word and it becomes unfruitful. Bill Gates said just a few years ago that going to church was the single biggest waste of time in his life because he could do something more productive. Hey, that's like a lot of Americans. 80% of America today is not in church. 50 years ago, it was just the opposite. See, we have no room for God anymore in this world that we live in. But what I'm wanting you to see is the fifth result of those who love money, they fall into error. Paul reminds us that they have wandered away from the faith. Now, there's a difference between denying the faith and wandering from the faith. There's an important distinction. A true Christian will never, ever, ever deny the faith. The Bible teaches the doctrine of perseverance. If they were of us, they would have remained with us. But the fact that they went out from us shows that they were not really of us to begin with. But many a Christian have wandered away from the faith and they have pierced themselves with many a pang. Pangs of worry, pangs of remorse, pangs of a broken marriage, pangs of rebellious children, all kinds of things can happen. Those who have wandered away, and so what happens? Their priorities change. They're no longer concerned in winning people to Jesus. 
They're more concerned about how big their bank account will be. They're no longer concerned about their next-door neighbor. They want to know who's going to win the basketball game tonight. Nothing wrong with basketball. I'm just talking about priorities here. The love of money. So back here to the book of Jonah. Turn back Jonah chapter 4. God is asking a stirring question. He's stripping his prophet naked before him. Do you have good reason to be angry about the plant? Do you have good reason? Let me ask you as you're turning back. Are you restless because you don't have the things that you think you should have? Are you no longer enjoying the plant that you once enjoyed? You better watch out because you'll meet God in his loving discipline if you're one of his. And so God does not want us to be so consumed with the plant that we lose our compassion for the lost. And I know Christians who are more concerned about the the scratch on their new car in the driveway than they are about their lost next door neighbor who's headed to hell. Verse 10, you had compassion on the plant for which you did not work and which you did not cause to grow, which came up overnight and perished overnight. In other words, God is saying, if that is true, Jonah, and it is, then why are you feeling sorry about my plant? You had no investment in that plant, and yet you're so concerned about that plant. Remember, the earth is the Lord's and all it contains. It's all my Jonah, it's my world, it's my plant, the great fish is mine, the wind is mine, the worm is mine, the sun is mine, the Ninevites is mine. It's all mine and I can dictate to do with mine as I so choose. But when we own what we're stewards of, our perspective gets a little bit distorted. So God wants him to realize You have no reason to be angry. I am a sovereign God, and I hope you realize that your anger doesn't change God's sovereignty one bit. And God's going to fulfill the great commission one way or the other, whether we're a part of it or not. He'll do it with or without you. But when we resist the sovereignty of God, the only one who gets hurt is not God, it's just us. Remember, God still accomplished his purpose because Pharaoh... Even though he resisted the will of God, God still let the people of Israel go. God's going to do it. And if you resist like Jonah resisted, the only one you will hurt is yourself. Now, you may resist for 10 years, and you'll waste 10 years of your life. And while God wanted to use you, he'll use someone else. And maybe there are some critical Years as your children are in your home and you should be building into their lives and grooming them for the next world and yet your priorities are so weak and your discernment is lost because discernment comes through obedience to the revealed will of God and, and evil's walking in the front door and capturing the hearts of your kids and you don't even see it. Listen, the sailors had it right concerning the sovereignty of God in chapter 1. In 114, they said, for you, O Lord, have done as you have pleased. That's what we need to pray. Not my will, but your will be done. May your will, Lord, be done on earth as it is in heaven. So God reminds Jonah that he is the creator. He is the sustainer. He is the destroyer. And all things happen directly or indirectly under his sovereign, omnipotent control. Now, don't miss the final verse. Look at it. Should I not have compassion on Nineveh 
the great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know the difference between their right and left hand, as well as many animals? Now, the first question we examined today was, do you have good reason to be angry about the plant? And that had to do with his warped perspective. But this question has to do with Jonah's heartless perspective because Jonah's heart is in the wrong place. He has no compassion for the people of Nineveh the way God has compassion and the way he should. He cares more about the plan. He cares more about something that's temporal than something that's eternal. That's why God allows the plant to grow up and die in a short 24-hour span because he wants to underscore and emphasize the temporal nature of things. Should I not have compassion on Nineveh? Should I not be moved with pity and mercy? Shouldn't I work on their behalf, Jonah? Now remember, in the first chapter, we learned that he was sent to preach. He doesn't want to go because he's a patriot of sorts. He loves Israel, and he sees the potential problem with wicked Ninevites being converted, God staying his wrath, and then becoming the instrument of God's discipline against the people. But this man needs to have compassion. Where would Jonah be if God had not sent that great fish? He'd be dead at the bottom of the sea. The grace of God that brings salvation teaches salvation to all men. The grace of God brings salvation to all men. Christ didn't die for some. He died for all. The extent of the atonement is for all men, but the intent is for those who will believe. It instructs us who have embraced it to do what? To deny ungodliness. As we've already discovered in this book, some of us have enough of the grace of God to be in the kingdom, but we haven't grown in the grace and knowledge of Jesus as we're commanded. This man needs compassion just as God showed him compassion. The truth is, is that everything on this planet is in the process of perishing. Someday, everything on this planet will be burned into oblivion. He will literally take the planet and burn it into nothing. And he'll create a new heaven and a new earth and the new Jerusalem where your loved ones are who are home with Jesus. That'll just come down and we'll sit on a brand new planet and it will be the capital city. So he's asking, should I not have compassion on Nineveh, the great city, in which there are more than 120,000 people who didn't know the difference between their right and left hands? Now, if you were here, Sermon 1, we said there were 600,000 plus people in Nineveh, Nineveh complex. And we looked at the archaeological evidence, those two great walls, the inner, the outer wall, it's a big place. But you can just work backwards. Conservatively, 600,000 people, how do you know? Because there's 120,000 people who don't know the difference between their right hand and their left hand. Little kids. Forget for a moment the wicked adult population, Jonah. What about the 120,000 children, small and innocent children, that don't even know the difference between left and right? And then as if to add a postscript, as well as many animals. John, I got 120,000 city children living in that city. They don't know the difference between right and left. And you want me just to burn the place into the ground? You want me to kill them? And forget about the plant for just a moment, Jonah. Animals are more important than plants. With those animals, I give you food and clothing and, and, you know, I provide for you. And the scripture says the wicked are cruel to animals. 
You find someone who's cruel to animals, you have a wicked person, not someone who's regenerated the spirit. God is showing Jonah that his attitude is just warped. Just bring it on down, fire and brimstone, wipe them out, God. What's your plant like this morning? As long as my home is good, everything's fine. As long as I got a nice car, everything's fine. As long as I have money to pay for the kids' school, everything's fine. As long as I wear nice clothes, everything's fine. As long as I have all the creature comforts that I want, then everything's copacetic. And when we start prioritizing that way, we lose perspective over things that are really important. We get mad when God says, I need some of your time for the Easter blitz. I don't know, Lord. I used to cut my lawn on Saturday mornings. I, I want you to give a, a tithe to the local church for the work here and for our 300 plus missionaries around the world. Oh, that's a lot of money. I want you to use your skills, your spiritual gifts and natural talents and actually find a place to dig in and not just to sit, soak, and sour. Oh, I don't know, Lord. I, you know, I don't want to make any commitments. Jesus said, seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. But by our actions, we basically say, Lord, I want all these things, and if I ever get around to it, maybe I'll get involved in your kingdom. You see, that plant, Jonah, I created it. That plant that you enjoyed, I provided it. And those little children, I care about those children just like I care about the wicked Ninevites. Now look, it's understandable that a lost person would be consumed with things. I mean, that's all he's got. That's his whole life. That's how he finds joy and meaning. But a regenerate person who knows that the only thing that lasts for all of eternity is God, his word, people, and angels, and everything else is gone? Our perspective is to be different. Now listen, before we rag on this man too much, we need to examine our own hearts. And when God wants to do something that inconveniences our plan and our programs, we need to take a hard look and ask why. How many of us are even burdened about the success of the Easter Blitz? First time back. Last year we just wrote notes. We didn't want to be intrusive. Get people, oh, what are they doing in my house spreading their COVID germs? All these kids, upward sports, they, so many of them don't even go to church. I'm meeting Marines, 18, 19, 20 years old, never been to church in my life. Do we even care how many of us are ticked off because the toaster doesn't work when our next door neighbor is on his way to hell? See, our priorities can often show. So God asked an important question. You say, well, did Jonah pass the three courses with flying colors? You say, how you do know it doesn't record the end? Because he wrote the book. 
God only uses a person who's in fellowship with him to move that person along by the Spirit of God that they would write Holy Scripture, not to mention Christ gives them an honorable mention. And so this man had been so changed, so non-threatened, so secure in his relationship with the Lord that what he wrote down, not just for the Jews of his day to read it because obviously they had major problems with the Assyrians, but for believers in our day, he recorded it for us to read all his dirty laundry because he came through with flying colors. 10 messages. How are we going to apply it? Let me give three final applications beyond what God may show you. Number one, I learned that God loves the people of Nineveh. God loves the people of Nineveh. Where is your Nineveh today? Maybe you're listening in Florida or Massachusetts or Illinois or California, and most weeks we have 30 states and different foreign countries, and we don't know where they are on Facebook. Wherever you are. Where's your Nineveh? Your Nineveh might be your next door neighbor whose dog runs wild, or the guy across the street who's always trashing his yard and making your property look embarrassing. Your Nineveh might be the apartment next door where they blare the music so loud you can feel the vibration through the walls. Maybe your Nineveh is your boss who just seems uncaring and he views you like a tool to make money. Maybe your Nineveh is your ex-wife who left you for another fellow, and you could care less about her soul. Maybe your Nineveh, as in many cities across America, is the Sikh or the Hindu or the Muslim neighbor, or maybe the homosexual who lives across the street or some transgender person. The message is clear. God still loves the Ninevites. And sometimes we think, oh, look at all this evil. Yes, it's real, and yes, it's growing, and yes, it's deepening, and yes, God said this would happen at the end of the age. But we are still called to evangelize because God still loves the Ninevites. Second, by application, God will do everything in his power to get you to share with Nineveh. God will do everything in his power to get you to share with Nineveh. God allowed him to spend three days and three nights in the great fish. What would he need to do to get us to obey? We live in a day of apathy and lukewarm churches. We're just interested in coming to church to make us feel good. We, we want a holiday cruise to Tarshish. We don't want to be on a battleship where we're engaged in spiritual warfare, trying to bring people into the kingdom. Listen, not to share Jesus Christ is disobedience. You can't share with everyone, but you can share with someone. And we need to ask God, who do you want me to share with? How can we who have been shown the mercy and grace of God be less merciful to other people? We're called to carry the gospel to them, and God is extending an invitation to Ninevites through his people today. The question is, are we willing to carry the message? So the book ends with a question that while we can't answer it for Jonah, we can certainly answer it for ourselves. And I hope God will give us the right answer. Look, the wind obeyed, the fish obeyed, the storm obeyed, the worm obeyed, the the sailors obeyed, the Ninevites obeyed. The question is, will I obey? 
I don't want to be like the prodigal son. I certainly don't want to be like the prodigal son's older brother. I want to obey. I want God to use me to see people the way he sees them. Let me give you a little test to see if you're more interested in plants or in bringing lost people to Christ. What do you really trust in, the word of God or your bank account? What do you admire more? The famous athlete, the lifestyles of the rich and famous, or the pastor or the missionary or the faithful Christian who just tries to carry the gospel wherever they can take it. Here's a pitiful prophet who at this moment in his life was more concerned about a temple plant than about lost souls. And as I've been preaching this morning, some of you, you're thinking out there about what you're going to do this afternoon and how your bracket's doing and what you're going to do next week. When God wants to speak to you about your plant so that you can get people in right priority. Finally, there are Ninevites who are ready to respond to your invitation. You know, Sometimes we look at lost people who seemingly are so deep in sin, we think that they'll never respond. Paul gave that long list. Don't be deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor drunkards, revilers, nor swindlers shall inherit the kingdom of God. But the next verse says, and such were some of you. You see that transgender person, he could be saved. I mean, they're indoctrinating these little children in our own government school system here in Beaufort County. Some of these kids, because they have no moral compass from the local church because they don't go, and they're being called to question basic moral truth. And we think, oh, they could never get become a Christian. Look, that's what we would have said about Saul of Tarsus. So Jonah is sent to Sin City, the capital of Assyria, And to his surprise and shock, they are ready to turn to the living God. And God sees people who are primed and ready. We just need to be available and to pray for those open doors. You know, the book of Jonah is really the John 3.16 of the Old Testament. For God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. The message of Jonah is that God is not willing for any to perish but for all to come to repentance. And Jesus plainly said, the one who comes to me, I will certainly not cast out. Now, Holy Father, we thank you that you gave us 10 weeks together in this book to study it. Thank you for the power of scripture, how it renews our mind, how it changes us from the inside. But help us to be more than those just who hear the word, but help us to be those who are willing to obey it and to apply it. I pray today for some Ninevites you've brought within the hearing of this message. Some dear person, maybe a teenager, maybe an older person who are uncertain where they will spend eternity. Thank you, Lord Jesus, that you didn't die for some of our sin or most of it, but all of it. And you proved your ability to die when you were raised from the dead. That whoever will call on your name will be saved. Help someone today, Father, to admit their sin is evil and wrong and in need of forgiveness and change. And help them to call upon Jesus to put their faith where you put their sin. 
Help someone in simple childlike faith, knowing that you cannot lie, to simply say, Lord Jesus, save me. I know there are hundreds in these services today, Father, that have already crossed that line. But we pray that you'd search our hearts, O Lord, to see if there be any wicked way in them, that you might lead us in the everlasting into eternal things that really will outlive us. Help us to see our jobs is not unspiritual, but is spiritual work as a means to an end to be an ambassador for Jesus Christ. And we pray even in this fresh week that you would give open doors of opportunity for us to share Jesus Christ. And we ask it, Lord Jesus, in your holy name. Amen.